0: If you're enjoying what you will learn, I'm sure that you're going to love Blinkist. At Blinkist, you'll find 12 to 15-minute book summaries that can be accessed in both the written format or the audio format as well. So, next time that you're on the tram, on the way to work, or you're waiting in a meeting, twiddling your thumb, Uh, you can get rid of Facebook and can Instagram and all these unproductive apps and get Blinkist because it is one of the most productive apps that you can get on your phone to make the most of your time that you have. So, right now, you can get a free seven-day trial to, to really get a taste for what it's all about. Head to... Blinkist.com forward slash what you will learn. That's Blinkist spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T.com forward slash what you will learn to start your free seven-day trial.
1: Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is
0: Adam Jones. Today, we are reviewing the easy way to control your alcohol by
1: Alan Carr. Twelve months ago, we did The Easy Way to Stop Smoking and we thought, you know, being the first uh, book episode of 2019, a bit of a New Year's resolution, if anyone wants to control their alcohol, this is definitely the book that will help you get there.
0: He's done it again. So, yeah. for those who haven't listened to the other episode with smoking, I used to be a pack a day smoker and I thought it was impossible to quit smoking. You know, it's, it's marketed to be such a hard challenge. I read this book, not only did I quit I quit it with considerable ease and I actually enjoyed the whole process. So, he's an absolute magician at helping you control uh, drugs, whatever that may be. So, that was all about smoking. Now, this is all about booze, which is much more common. He says 90% of the population drink. So, if you're a little bit worried about what you're about to hear, have an open mind. Listen to the whole episode. It's a different viewpoint on how to look at alcohol in general.
1: Yeah. For me, I thought... You know, I, I didn't smoke. I didn't know no one in my immediate family smoked. So, the, for me, reading the smoking book 12 months ago was more just for interest and for, you know, p- potentially smoking listeners out there. I really enjoyed his approaches, like his tactics for getting someone to that point to within 200 pages make someone quit smoking, which sounds so tough. So, for, you know, control your alcohol, I thought, you know, I'm not an alcoholic. I don't really know anyone with an alcohol problem. So, again, I'll just, I'll read it for the sense of reading it working out how he's doing it and you know it's a bit of a new year's tradition now we're we'll doing in Alan Carr book and but mm. man it's a bloody good book here we so go let's get in it, it's
0: going to be a very long episode he's not going to say hardly anything about the bad things about alcohol i think that's what you expect when you say a book like this what we're going to do is sell you on the idea of being sober and this is what he does and then naturally you actually want to drink less and that's the way to control it so that's what we're going to do in this episode and uh, buckle in
1: Yeah, he says that a lot of uh, other ways that try to help you quit or reduce alcohol, like say Alcoholics Anonymous, their thing is that, look, you're an alcoholic for for life and it's a terrible disease and there's absolutely no known medical cure for it. If you're an alcoholic, you're an alcoholic and you can't cure it.
0: Yeah, that's the stereotypical viewpoint of alcohol controlling it or being an alcoholic that it's bloody, bloody hard to stop because there's so many benefits to it. But he's saying... Imagine if there was a complete, easy, inexpensive cure that would work for anybody with a drinking problem, no matter how bad it was. That was immediate, permanent, didn't require any willpower, enable you to enjoy social occasions more, and let you better be equipped to handle stress. Involved no feelings of sacrifice or deprivation, or no need to resist temptation. Sounds great. And if you're listening, you think, "Yeah, bullshit."
1: Yeah, yeah, correct. But he, he talks about like being in a prison. If you're locked in a prison. It's easy to get out if you know the combination to that lock. And he's saying that we're trapped in this alcohol prison. Alcohol has trapped us in this prison and this book is going to be the combination to easily and simply unlock that combination lock and set free from that prison. So the rules are,
0: as you're reading this book or if you're listening to this podcast, uh, follow the instructions. Anyone who listens to this can find it incredibly easy to solve their drinking problem and even find it enjoyable. Number two, don't jump the gun. Number three is you don't quit or cut down until you finish the book. So, you keep on boozing up. And number four, stay in a happy frame of mind. So, the worst thing that can happen is that you don't succeed. So, if you go out and buy this book or you listen to this episode, uh, if nothing happens, who gives a shit? You're back to where you started. And uh, keep an open mind. And this is the big one.
1: Yeah, this is what he says is, look, this is the most difficult instruction of all is to keep an open mind. Hey, perhaps though, if you like, you know, if you like us, you might be very lucky in this respect. It's pretty amazing how you listening and us talking and Alan Carr writing. We're, you know, we're scrupulously fair. We always judge matters on their merits. We never jump to conclusions and wouldn't dream of passing judgment until we'd heard both sides of the argument. So that's you listening as well. But unfortunately, the rest of the world, they're they're bigoted, they're prejudiced, they're incapable of seeing that they're wrong. And in spite of the facts, sometimes they just blatantly stick to their own opinions as if a two-year-old would. You need to be
0: able to accept that the majority might be wrong and a lot of the experts might be wrong because everyone out there are drinkers. And the more unanimous the viewpoint and the more expert people are, the more likely, the more difficult it is to contradict them. So having said all this, you need to have an open mind as we uh, try and remove all the brainwashing we've had since birth about alcohol.
1: Yeah, and the people listening to this are lucky that they are open-minded already. Like This is, Alan Carr says, this is the toughest thing uh, to do. This is the most difficult thing. But we realize that you know there's nothing to lose by controlling our alcohol, and we've got so much to gain. Whether you're a full-blown alcoholic or you've just got a slight problem, nothing to lose, heaps to gain.
0: So we're going to just present a whole different side of facts, and what you need to do is actually be the judge and be reasonable. If these don't fit your viewpoint, then Mm. just drop them. You don't have to, but just try and be as rational as possible seeing both sides of the story here.
1: Yeah, Alan Carr, who's by no means saying, and we're not saying that whatever... Uh, is written in this book or whatever is said in this podcast, don't just take that and do it because we tell you to. He's, you know, Alan Carr is saying, look, here's the instructions. Don't follow them blindly. It's completely up to you. You be the judge to weigh up both sides of the argument. So, yes, everyone listening, please have an open mind.
0: So, the next chapter he talks about, are you an alcoholic? And the mainstream viewpoint of alcoholism and especially with Alcoholics Anonymous and so forth, they have this thought that a man who hasn't allowed alcohol in his mouth for 20 years considers himself an alcoholic. So, alcoholics say they're always an alcoholic. Like, it's a genetic predisposition. But at the same time, a man who gets paralytic after drinking 10 pints at the pub every Saturday night and just regards it as sociable, you know, they're just merely spending a relaxing weekend. So one person has never drank, an alcoholic, the other person is uh, having a
1: relaxing weekend. Yeah, it's, a, it's a, certainly a weird way to look at it when you put it that way. There's If you think of all the drinkers in the world, there's a, we're pretty much on a scale. There's little old grandma who just has one half a glass of ginger wine on Christmas Day with the family. That's at one end of the scale. And the other end of the scale is crazy old Uncle Ted who gets smashed at almost all occasions. The morning after, he needs a bit of the hair of the dog when he gets out of bed just to wake him up, and somewhere in between those two scales is everybody else who drinks.
0: So there's a lot of stuff going around about what alcoholism is, but Alan Carr says it's a very simple subject that has been complicated by all the cliches, fallacies, illusions, and misconceptions. So you need to be very patient to uh, hear all the counter-brainwashing, and in order to accept the truth of alcoholism, we must first dispel the misconception that you've been brainwashed since birth. So, you know, everyone listening, you're not going to consider grandma having that half a glass of ginger beer an alcoholic but at the same time at Christmas time when Uncle Ted is rolling around on the ground vomiting trying to punch on with your other uncle, (laughs) we all say he's an alcoholic but in between those two is the rest of us. So, where do you draw the line and where are you in between these two spectrums?
1: Yeah, it's hard to find where that line is. I definitely um, didn't consider myself an alcoholic by any means. And Alan Carr says that there's a lot of stigma attached to that word alcoholic. It's been painted in society to be a really bad thing. So, he says rather than that, let's say it's uh, somebody who has lost control of their alcohol. So, he doesn't talk about an alcoholic as much as somebody who has lost control of their alcohol. Hence the title of the book, The Easy Way to Control Alcohol. He says you should think back. When did you lose control of your alcohol? He says, not the point when you realize you had a problem, whether you were drunk driving, and you smashed up your car, or you came or you came home drunk one too many times and your wife left you, there, or you lost your job. There are massive moments where you realize that you had a problem, but he's saying that before the moment you realized that it was a problem, you lost control. And he's saying, when was the time that you lost control of your alcohol consumption?
0: Well, you might think that... You know, aren't we always in control? Like if you're a normal drinker, you only drink when you choose to and no one forces you to drink. You know, so that's just another another rhetorical question to get you to think. But there's another way of looking at it. Have you ever considered the possibility that the reason you can't work out exactly that one single moment when we lost control is because we were never in control in the first place.
1: Mm, bang it's a it's definitely a different approach isn't it It's just one of those as you say it's almost a rhetorical question to think rather than when do you lose control if you can't think of that perhaps you were never in control in the first place
0: mm. exactly he says perhaps the the billions of drinkers in the world are on the same downward slide so it's like a continuum where you you might have your first drinks and you're at the grandma level and then it's just a continuous slide it's not like this binary zero and one mm. you can control it's just a continuous slide um So, is that hard to believe? So, let's examine another one of nature's ingenious traps, which he uses as an analogy for how alcohol actually brings
1: you in. Mm, He says this analogy is like the pitcher plant, which is like a a Venus fly trap. It eats insects. It's like this big open uh, plant, got tall walls, got an opening at the top. And he said it emits this sticky nectar that it's coated with. Smells delicious. The flies love it. It stinks out the whole jungle and the fly wants to go and have a little taste of this free food that's just this sweet sticky nectar sitting on this plant and thinks i might just jump in there and have a have a a quick little nibble
0: yeah bit of bit of nectar and then as you say man it's it's free you think when you start nibbling it turns out it's not free and it turns out the hapless fly isn't the guest, but the fly right now is the meal itself. So it's flown onto this plant and all of a sudden gravity, the supply of uneaten nectar and the direction of hairs all conspire it further and further and down the nectar plant. And the further and further it goes down, the harder it is to jump off.
1: Yeah, once he gets its sticky nectar on its legs and he goes a bit further down and he sees a half-digested fly body and thinks, oh, hang on, that's not going to be me. I'm going to get out of here. Tries to take off gets a bit of sticky nectar on its wings and it's sliding further and further down this pitcher plant until a point where you can't even get out anymore. can't
0: even get out. And now, obviously, we're having this analogy and uh, translating it to alcohol. He says, can you picture the fly uh, first jumping on the pitcher plant to have a little bit of cheeky nectar as the first teenager, you know, at a 16th birthday or whatever, having a bit of UDL, having a bit of vodka and coke or whatever their, their tickle might be. And can you visualize the lager layout so the, the teenager just about to throw up as the blow to fly after eating all the nectar trying to take off.
1: Yeah, if you think, you know, I'm going to... Okay, I've just sampled my first little drink. It doesn't taste great, uh, but I'm, I've am i just sampled my first drink and I think I'm going to keep drinking and it's, it's okay. Everybody else is drinking and it's slipping further and further down and then at the point where I realize, hang on, I've drunk too much, I'm about to munt. I'm going to stop drinking now, but by that point... Just as like the fly about to take off, it's too late.
0: So, you try and at this point, you try and cut down or you might even be at that point where you try and quit. But does this help? It really doesn't. It's like dieting where you try and cutting it down or you're quitting it. It makes the thing seem more precious and scarce like the forbidden fruit. Mm. You just want it
1: more and more and more. Yeah, exactly. It's not the way to do it. So, if we think of, of grandma who's lucky enough, she only drinks you know one glass each year um, at Christmas. How come she hasn't slid down? this uh, this pitcher plant at all.
0: That's right, man. So, grandma has has managed to really just jump on the nectar plant and hasn't really even slid down a single inch. But for fortunate, but fortunately, for some of the population, they remember their first alcoholic drink and realized that it actually didn't taste like nectar at all. So, this is where this analogy is, is a little bit different. The first person, the, the teenager who jumps on the nectar plant, if you think about that first drink you had whether it be a beer or whatever, it tastes like shit, man. No, it's
1: no good. It's disgusting. It it tastes disgusting. (laughs) So,
0: grandma remembers that and she has always just had that half a glass of ginger beer at every Christmas thing just to really fit in and make everyone else a little bit more at ease of uh, not having that extra sober presence around.
1: Yeah. And now, again, back to this point of control and being in control and not being in control. When do we lose... What's the point in which we lost control of that alcohol? But what is Alan Carr is saying... The fly was actually never in control. From the moment it had that first waft of the smell of that nectar, that's the point where it lost control because once it smelt the nectar, started flying over towards the nectar plant, had its first little lick of the nectar, it's already lost control. It's well and truly gone. So seeing that we're brainwashed from when we start that adults are tough and they drink alcohol and it's really good and everybody drinks it, we're already brainwashed. We've already caught that sniff of the nectar and we've already
0: lost control. So, if you're someone on this nectar plant, it might be really hard to accept, but you've got no cause to feel guilt than the fly enticed to nectar. I mean, it's the, the way the trap's designed is that it's, it's ingenious and
1: uh, you shouldn't feel guilty at all. Yeah, that's just society. And he, he relates it back to, say, smoking. And he says, if you see a youngster on the street who's trying his first cigarette, he's coughing, he's spluttering, he thinks it tastes disgusting... Are you going to say to that kid, "I'll oh, keep working at it, son"? You know, if you keep getting there, it'll start to taste better, and eventually, you'll have years of pleasure ahead of you if you keep smoking. Obviously, obviously not. Um, so, but why do we do that with alcohol? Like we think that the first beer we taste is pretty disgusting. You know, if we for the next couple of weeks or months we'll try a few more beers, and same as wine, it doesn't taste that great at first. But we can sort of acquire this taste. We train ourselves up to like this thing that tastes disgusting, and that's what he says is sort of the genius. Of the trap is because it tastes disgusting, we think we're never going to get hooked on it. It's not like it's uh, something delicious that we like to drink, we enjoy drinking. The point that it tastes disgusting is actually part of the trap by thinking I'm never going to get hooked on it, so it's okay if I have some more. Yeah, exactly. Now, the next story he talks about is, imagine you're the Count of Monte Cristo. You've been locked up in a prison for 25 years in this dungeon. And say a doctor comes along one day and says... Look, you're not very healthy in here. It's really damp. It's moldy. You're not getting enough sunlight. It's really inconsiderate to yourself and your own health to stay in this place. And you can't even imagine the damage it's having on your family. And the doctor says, look, if you're going to be sensible, why don't you just leave here permanently or, ve- or at the very least, cut down the amount of time that you spend in here. Mm. Obviously, that's a pretty ridiculous suggestion. Oh, the yeah? person's
0: thinking, fuck, of, of course I'd get out if I could. I'm <laughs> locked, mate. I'm locked.
1: If you're locked in the prison... A doctor telling you to just get out is a ridiculous thing and that's how we feel like we're in this alcohol-fueled prison and someone comes along and says, I'll just cut down or just quit altogether. It sounds like stupid advice, ridiculous advice because obviously if we could, we would, but we're trapped in this prison.
0: So what the experts do is they list all the disadvantages of drinking that thinking the the person in the prison, it's going to help them, but it really makes it harder when someone lists all these disadvantages you know, things like the average lifespan of a heavy drinker is 20 years less than a non-drinker or the average drinker spends about 200 grand Australian. I mean, everyone can do their own maths about what it'll cost you or alcohol destroys brain cells. Uh, it's a major cause of imp- impotence and so forth. There's a lot of different ones and what the book, the book isn't about scare tactics so it doesn't really go on with all these negatives at all because the point is when you hear... These things you're probably going to get a little bit stressed and reach for a drink. Yeah, <laughs> <It> <laughs> that's doesn't what
1: help. <laughs> if the doctor said you'd be too stressed out, but I think that's sort of the the key point here is that saying that you know he this is Carr's method. You know, he's not just listing all these negatives because it's it doesn't work. Uh, more information doesn't help. We already probably know that if we're at this state, it's not good for us. And these aren't the reasons we're drinking anyway. Like by you telling someone over the course of your life, you're going to spend $200,000 on alcohol. You're not drinking alcohol to save money. So like it's so contradictory that it doesn't even matter. Um, Or saying like, you know, you're going to lose 20 years off your lifespan. You're not drinking alcohol to extend your lifespan. So it's like giving somebody a reason that isn't actually the reason that they drink it in the first place. So later on in the book, he's actually going to counteract the real reasons we drink, not these perceived reasons.
0: So the next chapter is about exhilaration and Acceleration being probably how we perceive alcohol but he says don't be fooled by the name it's a powerful poison it's highly addictive we do will debilitate your immune system and impede concentration it will destroy your nervous system your courage your confidence and ability to relax by the way it tastes awful and will cost you 200 grand in your lifetime and what do you get from it yet nothing
1: yeah. If someone said that hey I've got this new drug called exhilaration and sold it to you in this way, obviously you're not gonna try because it, it sounds like a it sounds useless, yeah.
0: Perhaps you might think this is an exaggeration when it comes to alcohol. And when people ask what's your poison, it's not a colloquiation. It's if you drank a small portion and eat alcohol, you'd actually kill yourself. Mm. And what I said before, does it taste awful? Have a twenty bit of pure alcohol and see how it tastes. Will it cost you two hundred grand, you know, perhaps, just do your math yourself or is it highly addictive? If you look around, 9 out of 10 people that you know, including you, are dependent on alcohol. Meaning, if you ask them to go out and spend that Saturday night sober or go to that wedding sober, they can't do it. They're dependent on alcohol mm. to give them a good time and whatever social occasion it might
1: be. Yeah, so that's exactly why this, that that is explaining alcohol perfectly. But you must be thinking, you know, surely the vast majority of people are drinking and 90% of people drink so maybe they're doing it because they enjoy it to some extent but he's saying that's part of the subtleties of the the trap of how alcohol traps you in this prison you know you're on this slide down to rock bottom but it's so gradual you aren't even aware of it obviously at the very start you don't have these such big impacts of it but it's like growing old you don't really notice how old you are until you look back in the mirror or say look at a photo from 10 years ago and you realize that actually there has been a big impact of all of this.
0: If Alan Carr could actually transport you to a time in the future, if you chose not to drink in a few months or something, you'd feel amazing, you'd save all this money, you'd realize social occasions were a certain way and so forth. And you wouldn't, wouldn't even really have to use this book. But He's saying you have an imagination, use it in this case.
1: Yeah, if you, if you were to picture a, a drug addict taking heroin, And you know, you're not going to think, oh, injecting heroin looks like fun. I'm going to give that a try one day. But obviously, that's not how it's. You know, that's the very tip of the pitcher plant. That one, you know, doing it for that first time to an outsider, it looks obvious that heroin addicts. It it seems ridiculous, but to the addict themselves, they feel like the heroin is actually giving them a genuine high. So it's like much like alcohol. You know, to the non-drinker looking at someone drinking alcohol, they can see it for what it really is. But to the alcoholic drinking, they do think, I actually really do get a lot of benefit and enjoyment out of drinking alcohol.
0: Yeah, so the person who's saying, oh, I do drink it because it enjoys me, it relaxes me, it's social, the the non-drinker doesn't believe him. Mm. They're getting all these benefits that the the drinker doesn't know about. They're oblivious to it.
1: Yeah, we'll go through them in in more detail later. But when he says, you know, it's a social thing and then the non-drinker sees them after 10 beers about to vomit on the floor and uh, very inappropriately touching people, it's not a social thing whatsoever. Absolutely, man. So alcohol—it's been stealing your money, health, courage, and
0: confidence ever since you fell in the trap. And if there was nothing you could do about it, you're better off being ignorant. But fortunately, there is something big you can do about it. that's mm. what we're going to be getting into.
1: Yeah, he talks to the brainwashing and you know this society-built trap that when we're kids or when we're young, we get brainwashed into thinking you know alcohol. Tastes good. It quenches our thirst. It makes us happy. It steadies our nerves. It's a mature adult thing to do. It gives us confidence and courage. Removes inhibition. It relieves boredom and stress. It eases pain. It sounds like great things, man. Oh yeah. But that's all bullshit, and that's what we're brainwashed into thinking when we're young, which is why we have that first sip of that nectar at the top of the pitcher plant.
0: So we glamorize
1: and emphasize
0: all these illusory benefits, which soon hold hold your breath is is going to knock me out of the park. But we didn't choose to drink any more than we chose uh, to speak our native tongue. It's part of our heritage, our culture and upbringing. As we grow up, booze is everywhere. It's part of every barbecue, Christmas mm. function and so forth. So, it's just it's just everywhere and that's why we drink it.
1: Yeah, I don't know what it's like in other countries but I'm sure it's very similar that uh, maybe, you know, Friday after work, everyone goes for a knockoff drink or, you know, on the parties on the weekend at the barbecue, everyone's having a drink. It's this thing that's just... Ingrained. As you say, it's like part of our native tongue. It's just part of society and what we do.
0: So, Alan Carr says, Can you remember when you last were completely rested after six hours sleep, bursting with energy, looking forward to another exciting day on the planet? And can you actually remember this happening even on a Monday morning? So, this is in Alan Carr's point of view. Before he escaped the drugs trap, his favorite thing of the week was just lying in bed on a Sunday, the Sunday sleep in and... Uh, feeling tired but at the same time miserable, thinking how the hell
1: am I going to face another week and fuck, tomorrow's Monday. <laughs> yeah, obviously after a big Saturday night drinking session, he loved sleeping in on a Sunday morning. So the, re- the best reason you
0: should be quitting or cutting down, it's not because it's killing you and all these negative things we we're saying before, but actually you're going to enjoy life so much more if you quit or cut down your alcohol
1: yeah he says that our brain and our body is this incredible machine, and we possess this sophisticated early warning system it 's like the you know the fuel gauge it tells you that the light comes on when you 're about to run out of fuel. He says our body's similar to that, and that if we drink too much, it realizes that it 's killing us, and so we throw up so that it makes us stop drinking obviously it 's a bad thing for us, or if we drink too much, we really feel it the next day it 's our body telling us that this is most certainly not something we should be doing. So he's saying that this uh, incredible machine stops us, but what can happen instead is rather than you know sleeping in and being really groggy and having this blanket of fog, he says, on a Sunday morning, if you can, rather than you know sleeping in all morning and being hung over the next day, you're losing an entire day. Whereas if you don't drink, you've got an incredible day ahead of you and you've got a hell of a lot of energy.
0: Absolutely, man. So how, how the hell do we fall into this trap? Now the circumstance is going to vary with each individual but the principle is generally the same. We sneak a few few little tipples at parties during childhood and then most of us dabble more seriously during that period of great upheaval and rebellious phase that happens in most teenagers' lives. But early childhood is generally more stressful than adolescence. But when you're in early childhood, you survive it without the need to resort to drugs. So as we grow older, for some reason we feel like this dependency to rely on alcohol to get us through certain places. But if you observe children when they're a lot younger who don't need alcohol, they're at first shy and inhibited and half an hour later, they're screaming with delight without the need of alcohol. If you compare that to a party of adults, they might be shy and inhibited at the start, but then they need all the booze, they get drunk and then they're running around and meeting people. So they're dependent on this drug to actually go out there and socialize.
1: Yeah, exactly. When we're a kid at a... 10-year-old birthday party. We didn't need the alcohol to give us the confidence and the courage to go and talk to random people. We just did it of our own accord and that alcohol has actually taken that from us. By relying on the alcohol, we can no longer do that by ourselves. The other thing is just says is that normally, you know, when we're a kid, we have like sweet, when I say kid, like, you know, when you first start drinking, maybe you have the, the sweet wine, maybe you have the, um, you know, mix your stuff with soft drink, maybe you drink cider. UDL, and we, Bacardi breezes. Yeah, that's Always. it, man. I love a good cruiser. Um, but he says that, you know, then we start to realize that this is, you know, they're sort of kids' drinks. Now, kids drink soft drink and mixing it with soft drink is for kids. So maybe we go more towards the beer. Maybe we start to go more towards the soda water. Maybe we go to drinking it straight. Uh, so we're trying to be more adult. But what we're doing is just training ourselves. We're forcing ourselves to try and acclimatize this taste of this straight alcohol, which actually tastes disgusting.
0: Yeah. So whatever your story about how you started drinking, it's all going in one direction lock the fly down the pitcher plant, there's only one way and that's downwards, down this alcohol trap. So usually the only time you can actually cut down or quit is at this certain critical point where you think that alcohol is causing you a problem and then being a hindrance in some way in your life. But then now he has or she has two problems. When you're drinking, you feel guilty and miserable, but when you're not drinking, you feel deprived and miserable. <laughs> so after several attempts to cut down, Uh, what you're going to try and do is use something. What he says is the willpower method, which is everyone's way of trying to cut down and
1: quit. So the willpower method is the suggestion that all it takes is a little bit of willpower to abstain from alcohol. If you don't want to drink, it just takes a little bit of willpower not to drink. But he says that that's a bit of a contradiction that most people who become addicts are actually pretty strongly willed. And he uses the idea of like a little kid throwing a tantrum. If like a little kid wants a a lolly, and the parent says, no, the weak-willed kid will give up. The strong-willed kid will continue the tantrum to, until he gets what he wants. So he's saying that if you deprive yourself of alcohol, it's actually the strong-willed person who's more likely to get what they want and eventually overcome that and actually get the alcohol they want. So he says that, that by saying it's all it takes is willpower, is saying that anyone who can't do it is weak-willed, which is wrong.
0: It ingrains into our mind that we can actually never be cured of, of the, the problem. I mean, the mere fact that we use the expression, I'm going to give up Mm. opposed to quit or stop implies that you're making a sacrifice. For those who quit using the willpower method, think they're sacrificing something really big and depriving themselves from all these benefits. So instead of starting with a feeling of elation and excitement and challenge, which is the easy way, we start with a feeling of doom and gloom as we attempt to scale Everest without the benefits of rope and oxygen. So when you're stopping using the willpower method, you know, and you're going out, and, oh, I'm not drinking, and you're sitting there like a goody two-shoes when you're out, but a lot of people who believe they're making a sacrifice find those times extremely difficult.
1: Mm, and I can only imagine that uh, if you use the willpower method and you think all it takes is a little willpower, every time we get a, say, a cigarette or an alcohol, every time you get a craving to take alcohol, that all it takes is willpower not to do it. That's about exhausting, man. To do that for the rest of your life—something you want and you're depriving yourself of—I'd say that's almost impossible to do.
0: Yeah, it's like a tug of war. So you got your reasons why you wanted to control and or quit or whatever, but the other the other side of things is the things you're sacrificing, you're giving up. So it's like the two the weighing scales, kind of weighing and pulling mm-hmm. against each other. But then one day, all of a sudden. Or uh, on the one side of the tug of war or the reasons you think you're sacrificing and, you know, you go to a party and there's all of a sudden all, everyone else boozing up a bit more, you might think, ah, stuff and I'm just going to have one drink. It is, it is Christmas or for whatever reason mm. you might come up with.
1: Yeah, just that, just one drink.
0: Yeah, eventually <laughs> our resistance is exhausted and then the ingenuity typical of our species in general and of drug addicts in particular so we'll find any excuse that will mm. enable us that just one drink.
1: Mm. Yeah, exactly. It's an inevitable flaw of the, the willpower method. And a quick pause and think of a, a bit of a meta approach because I like not only do I like reading the book, I like the trying to work out how did he do this. He he never talks about drinking alcohol. He doesn't say when you go and drink alcohol. He talks about take alcohol. So he says when you take alcohol. So almost it makes it like that idea of a drug like you take a drug whereas you like obviously drinking alcohol sounds good taking a drug sounds bad and the other thing he never talks about quit or you know trying to uh, deprive yourself of it he always talks about control or stop which is uh, two different ways of saying the same thing one with a positive connotation and one with a negative so i like that cool book now what about Definitely. the uh, uh You know, talking about this willpower method, everyone's got these reasons as to why they drink and, you know, anyone who says, oh, no, I don't want to stop drinking, I don't want to quit drinking, I've got X, Y, Z reason that I enjoy drinking. We're about to knock some of those out of the park. Absolutely. So, Alan Carr says, all of these things people say,
0: they're actually excuses and they're not reasons. The reason the practice is so difficult to break is the schizophrenia, as we're saying, you believe you're making a sacrifice. And this won't be so bad if the 90% of the population, basically, everyone's boozing up. Uh, but not only do they drink, they sit there having their meal with a glass of red and enthusing over the quality of the wine that they're drinking. Yeah, That's yeah, been me a lot of time.
1: <laughs> it's a crook shit as well. And someone
0: else might be thinking on a Friday, after they finish work, they kick off the work boots and be thinking, Ah, but I like the taste of beer. I can't stand the taste of water.
1: Yeah, it's one of those things that, you know, this excuse that it's a it's an acquired taste that, you know, someone who en- enjoys a drink of wine with their meal and they think it makes the meal better, like that's not, that's one of the reasons people use it, but really it's an, it's, it's an excuse. Because if you think back to when you first had that drink uh, and it didn't taste so good and you probably thought, do I really have to drink this for the rest of my life? it's actually like a warning sign. It's a warning that you're drinking poison, like it actually is poison. And our body is telling us, don't drink this. And if you drink more, it actually vomits. And if that's not as clear a sign of, you know, your body trying to tell you that you're doing something it shouldn't be, then then I don't know what is.
0: So that's what it's like at the very first time we drink. We can all remember that. But in reality, obviously, the alcohol itself doesn't change. Mm. The taste remains the same the whole time. But what really happens is the perception of the taste changes. So if you think of the analogy of a man working in a pig farm and is rolling around and cleaning up shit all day, the, the man might become immune to the smell to such an extent that he is no longer aware of the shit smell that's lingering around. But if he gets home in soil clothes, uh, he'll get a good sharp reminder from the wife. So even though it's something that isn't that good for him with the smell, he's come acquired to the to the smell of shit. A little bit like alcohol, something that doesn't taste good, your perceptions change to morph around, to wrap around, to actually believe that it actually tastes good.
1: Yeah, I used to actually, this is one I, I used to pride myself on the, you know, that I, when I first drunk red wine, I didn't like it, but I prided myself on my ability to, you know, I trained myself almost to acquire the taste to enjoy red wine or seems like drinking straight whiskey. Um, Or scotch, and I didn't like it, but I trained myself to be able to enjoy, you know, a $200 Johnny Walker blue label bottle. And I saw that as like a bit of a badge of honor. Yeah, I'm tough. I can drink whiskey straight. I've acquired Mm -hmm. that taste, but uh, it still tastes shit, man.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. So that's the one about taste, you know, the the wine with meal brigade, which he says. Another big reason that, or excuse for everyone drinking, is the belief that alcohol gives you courage.
1: Yeah, you might think that. You couldn't possibly go up and talk to a, a person of the opposite sex or the same sex, whatever your preference is. You couldn't possibly go up to a bar and, and speak to someone that you're attracted to without you know, the courage, the, the Dutch courage that comes with taking a, a drink of, uh, of alcohol. Or if you think, you know, we did stand-up comedy, you might think a bit of Dutch courage, it's such a scary thing. If I just have a have a one glass of beer, I'm going to feel a lot more courage and I'm going to be able to do that.
0: So when we think of the word courage, we normally associate it with the words like bravery or cowardice, but Alan's saying before we examine alcohol's effect on courage, we need to look at the word fear. So typically we regard fear as some kind of evil, but in reality it's like an ally or friend. It's a fear of heights that guarantees that, you know, we have the necessary precautions climbing ladders or it's a fear of fire that prevents us throwing petrol on a naked flame and so forth. So before we examine alcohol's effect on courage, we need to really look at the word fear. And he asked the question... Does alcohol reduce fear or does it give you courage? Perhaps alcohol allow the passenger on the plane, you know, the person who's scared of flights, that they have that few beers and all of a sudden they can jump on or the difference between sailors back in the day doing duty or mutinying against their king. And he uses this, the, the analogy of an ostrich. And what an ostrich might do when it's in danger and has this feeling of fear, it sticks its head in the sand. And it does so because it believes if it can not see the danger that's surrounding him or her, then the danger doesn't even exist, which is obviously a crock. So the ostrich is actually, in reality, really quite powerful. It's got these massive legs that can run away from any kind of predator. But what it does, it just sticks its head in the sand. It deprives itself of all these essential attributes to be able to survive. So now you, when you go out and drink alcohol to remove the fear, you're really doing the same you negate any possibility of dealing with the source of fear and thus removing it permanently. So if you're someone who goes out there to drink so they're a bit more confident, confident with the opposite sex, you're really are like an ostrich sticking your head in the ground just because you can't look at the fear that you really have in your life. And you've got no ability to actually deal with this skill or this necessity uh, and you lose the ability to actually deal with this part of life with this tribulation that everyone has to deal with but no you're sticking your head in the sand.
1: Yeah, and it's this downward spiral that gets worse over time that before you started drinking you had to do things that were uncomfortable and you needed courage to do those things that were uncomfortable. When you start drinking, you think that by drinking it gives you courage. Then obviously the next time you do something uncomfortable, you're not going to be able to do it without drinking. So the more and more you drink in order to trick yourself to think that you're getting courage out of it, the less able you are next time. To use genuine courage without drinking. So you're really eroding any sense of courage and confidence that you had without drinking. So do you see a drunk as someone, you know, bravely facing
0: up to all the trials and tribulations of life? You know, rhetorical, obviously you're not. Like he's clearly someone who cannot face life on its own terms and is trying to block it out, like block out all the problems with life by Uh, choosing booze instead of dealing with the real shit
1: that comes down. Mm, Bang. Another one might be like, uh, you know, I I drink alcohol to have a good time and enjoy the party because it reduces my inhibitions. That's another uh, excuse people give about drinking.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of people out there who think the key to a big successful party is to pull out the booze early, get everyone 10 beers down so everyone's a little bit drunk, just so all the guests remove the inhibitions and they're past this embarrassing stage where they have to go around and meeting people where they're shy and inhibited at the start yeah
1: and again like like fear inhibitions are a natural thing they're part of our being as an animal they're there to prevent us from doing things that are too stupid and uh, obviously if you've ever been at a work function, had too much to drink, those inhibitions for stopping you from doing something stupid, they're all gone and uh, often you can do something very, very stupid.
0: Yeah, exactly. These inhibitions are real, a uh, necessary thing that prevent us or make us worry about looking silly or being seen in, in unfavorable light or helps us have the checkpoints between what's in our head and what we say and so forth. So when you're at one of these parties where everyone's boozing up to this level, the next day when you're out for coffee or brunch whatever, Someone might say to you, I must have had a good time last night. I was so drunk, I can't even remember
1: it. (laughs) Sounds like a good night.
0: I've said it before, mate. But if you really think about it, why the hell on earth should you remember it if you were semi-conscious? And how the hell can you enjoy yourself if you're unconscious? So, if you're blind drunk every Saturday night of your life going around, do you really think you're enjoying your life? How the hell can you if you're actually unconscious for all these peak moments? And when I first read the book, this is one of the biggest things that happened to me, right? Because... I used to drink and get drunk at all the big events, the weddings, the big birthday parties and so forth. But is this realization that how the hell can you enjoy these peak moments of your life if you're actually unconscious and you're not even there?
1: Bang, bang. If you look back on your life, have you ever been impressed by someone who was blind drunk? They've never said anything uh, that was worth remembering. Do you actually, you personally get pleasure out of being so wasted drunk that you can't remember it? Are you actually genuinely proud of the night you had if you can't even remember it? And are drunk people good role models? I'm pretty sure the answer to all those is a a big resounding no.
0: Yeah, man, we're not going to look up. They're not role models. They're not Mm. people we look up to. We look at them people as a little person who wouldn't even say boo. Mm, Bang, bang. So that's another one, man. Alcohol removes inhibitions.
1: That's that's another... Another Another excuse is alcohol steadies my nerves and you might think, oh, it's just I've had a tough day at work and I just need this one... One glass of whatever your favorite drink is just to settle your nerves and relax after a, after a tough day.
0: Exactly. And and what we do in life, if we're feeling hot and sweaty, what we'll do is we'll take a shower. If we feel tired and unclean, we might take a hot bath. If our feet are aching, we'll put on slippers. If we're hungry and we will eat. In each of these cases, what we're doing is rem- we're removing an aggravation and or distracting our minds from one. So, we're actually removing... And then, this is actually steadying and calming our nerves.
1: Yeah, that's actually true. Whereas, if we try to have the same thing with alcohol, we think if we're nervous or stressed, we have an alcohol to relax ourselves. That's the same uh, thing that we're trying to do with, you know, if we're sweaty, we take a shower. We're trying to actually remove something. But he's saying that alcohol... Definitely does not actually relax you or calm your nerves. It's just again a a misconception. Exactly,
0: it doesn't remove any aggravations for you. It actually just deadens all your senses. So Mm -hmm. again, uh, giving you the misperception of actually what's actually happening. And then all of a sudden, when the effect of the drug has actually worn off, the original aggravation that you think you're deadening is still there. Or it's actually even worse than it was in the first place because you got a little bit of a cheeky hangover
1: to go with it. Yeah, exactly. Like say, so if you're sweaty, you have a shower, you're cured. Whereas if you're stressed because something massive happened at work and alcohol, taking alcohol doesn't fix what happened at work and as you say, probably the next day, you're even less likely to solve that problem.
0: Absolutely. So if we look at drug addiction in general, Carr's now got another suggested definition. So his definition of drug addiction is doing something repeatedly which you wish you didn't do at all but you can't stop doing it. Or that you wish you did less, but you cannot.
1: If you cast your mind back to what he calls the learning stage, you know when we're trying to train ourselves to drink, when we're you know a teenager and we want to become an adult so we train ourselves to drink, you probably don't you know if you can only drink three, you probably don't look at someone with envy who drinks twelve, and if you can drink twelve, you're probably not looking enviously at the person who drinks thirty. you're not wishing you can drink more. Everybody wishes it was the other way around. So if you're thinking that then you' this is fitting into Carr's definition, of the addiction, a drug addiction that you wish you could do less, but you can't, or or you wish you could stop, but you can't stop.
0: And he compares it with uh, a hobby. So for us, uh, our favourite hobby is reading. And now let's just compare this with alcohol. Although reading, or whoever's listening, whatever your hobby might be, it might be an expensive pastime, but you never really feel like you're wasting money. And if you wanted to stop this hobby, you wouldn't go through all this trauma and withdrawals. You just quit and stop doing it. And also, if you went on a holiday, for example, without your hobby, like reading, it wouldn't be much of an issue. But all of a sudden, when it comes to any kind of drug, if you can't go on a holiday or if you can't go a Saturday night or a certain occasion without it, then you're most likely you're already dependent on the drug to help you in in these. Uh, if you can't go on a holiday without your drug, whether it be alcohol, nicotine or whatever, then you're already dependent on the drug.
1: Mm. He says that every drug is slightly different, but there are a few factors that are common across all drug addictions. Firstly, he says it brainwashes you to believe that you're in some way incompetent or that there's some kind of inherent void, and so we're taking alcohol to fill this void within us.
0: Another thing is it initially tastes foul and provides us no pleasure or crutch at the start, but
1: that removes the fear that you're going to get addicted because it tastes like shit at the start. Yeah, that's part of the trap. Another one is that like the accumulative effects as they wear on you, the feeling of dependence comes greater and greater and you're going to actually increase your intake. And that's because, say, you you drink, the first time you drink, you probably get drunk off one drink. But the more you become used to it, you probably then you need three or four drinks to get drunk. Then you need eight or nine drinks to get drunk. So the more you have this drug, the more you need to take this drug to have the same sort of effects.
0: And another thing about drug addiction in general is we believe or we are brainwashed to believe that drugs, whatever the drug might be, they're really difficult to quit. And when you do try and quit, you're going to go through periods of deprivation, pain, and pleasure. And what he says is the deprivation and pleasure, they're real. They're not actually illusory. And they're actually caused by a bunch of things. Number one is the immediate hangover effects from the previous binge. It might be from the accumulative detrimental effects caused by physical drinking, so on your mental health, finances and relationships, these things are all really gradual and slow so you don't really notice them as much. Number three is all the other genuine stresses in your life that are really building up. If you didn't drink, you'd address or solve them but because you're drinking, they're really going up and up and up. And number four is this empty, insecure feeling or what he calls the the little monster. It's this uh, the slight addiction that you might have physical which is much less than we actually believe. And number five, which is the real big one, is the whole mental craving uh, around the drug.
1: Yeah, he says that when you have that next drink and you think that you're enjoying the drink itself, really what you're doing is just relieving the end of the irritation. So because we become addicted to, you know, in this situation I drink alcohol, we've become addicted to that alcohol in that situation. Having the drink then makes us think we're enjoying the drink, but really we're just ending the irritation of not drinking. So, it's pretty much like we're below normal and we drink and we go back to normal. But he's saying that non-drinkers, if you're not drinking, you're at that normal point all the time. So, you don't need a drink to get back to normal.
0: It's like an analogy of wearing a really, really tight shoe. When you put on the tight shoe, it gets tighter and tighter and hurts a little bit more and you go downhill in your happiness and then you take the shoe off and ah, oh, you get this big feeling of, of relaxation. But why the hell would you wear that tight shoe in the first place? Mm. That's the nature of drug addiction. You're putting on this shoe and then you get this effect that brings you up and then you believe it's the actual drug that's giving you this upward pull. But in reality, it's the thing that the, the, the person who's not taking the drug in the first place ha- feels all the time.
1: Mm. And he says if you look back on your life, yeah, there was, there's going to be hundreds of occasions that you enjoyed whilst you were drinking. So that might you might think that, okay, I had a good time and I was drinking. It doesn't mean that drinking is bad for me. But what he's saying is that you actually needed that drink and he's saying that the alcohol actually became more precious after it became a problem. So it's sort of like if you once alcohol becomes a problem and you need to drink more and more, it becomes so precious. If you can't have it, you want it more.
0: So in reality, we only crave drugs because we are deluded into believing they provide some kind of genuine crutch or pleasure. And once you... Move this delusion of this crutch or pleasure all of a sudden
1: the addiction is removed also another thing he talks about is the myth of the addictive personality. This chapter in particular smacked me up because it 's something I used to cling to, saying that oh, i've just i 've got this addictive personality, whether it's uh, you know people say this for smoking, drinking, gambling, eating social media, uh, whatever it is, or for me it 's like you know if I hear a song or get addicted to a song for like three days and I'll listen to it on loop. So I just used to tell myself I had this addictive personality and, you know, there's this myth that there's some kind of biological difference in certain people's brains that makes them more susceptible to addictions like that. But what he's saying as well is that, you know, we see ourselves as being strong-willed and intelligent people but we then fall trapped uh, and we get addicted to something. So there's this cognitive dissonance there. So what he's saying, we fill in that cognitive dissonance between being addicted, but also being strong-willed. He says that, oh, we've just got this addictive personality. So that's what, how we fill in this cogn- cognitive dissonance. But what he says, which I thought was hilarious, uh, the only people that claim to have an addictive personality are people that are addicted to something or that we're addicted to something in the past. Mm-hmm. So it's very true that uh, anyone who's addicted to something will justify it by saying, oh, I've got an addictive personality. And he says it's probably a bit of an incredible coincidence that the only people with addictive personalities are addicted to something. You know, <laughs> exactly. If you've never met someone that says they've got an addictive personality, but they aren't addicted to something, maybe it's a, a more rational explanation rather than that you've got an addictive personality, but instead you've been taking some kind of highly addictive drug, whether mm-hmm. that is smoking, drinking but also gambling, social media, overeating, all very addictive things.
0: Absolutely, man. When it comes to drug addiction, and i know this from cigarettes previously, we'll come up with some ridiculous rationalizations mm-hmm. to be able to keep on taking whatever drug it might be. All right, so another reason the listener might be sitting here and be thinking, oh, well, you know, I only drink to be sociable. So we all regard uh, experiences as bar fights or vomiting after a big boozy night. We all agree that they're antisocial. Right? We're all yeah. on the same page there. So what about just a normal party or, you know, just going to the local pub for a couple of beers after work? Could anyone deny that these are sociable pastimes? And this is one of the biggest, one of the scariest things that people have when they try and cut down or quit. It's this feeling that you're going to have this big void in your life. If you stop or cut down drinking, you're not going to... be able to attend these social
1: functions where everybody's having a few beers. Yeah. So Alan Carr's wife Joyce, she didn't drink, and when she went out with Alan and his friends who were all drunk, they all said, "Oh, Joyce, you're being antisocial because you're not drinking with us." But really, even though she was being accused of being antisocial, she was actually being extremely social because she was choosing to be mentally present with her friends, or you know, she was choosing she was not choosing to be mentally absent. And instead, they're the ones who they think they're being social because they're all having a a good time over the drink. But really, they're the ones who are being inappropriate. And they're the ones who are becoming more and more drunk, more and more antisocial as they become more and more mentally absent.
0: Yeah, that's what they're choosing to do. Now, if you go to a bar, yes, there'll be a lot of people uh, drinking and laughing and joking. That's because they're friends, not because they are drunk. And that's something to, to really get your mind around.
1: Yeah, and that's another one of the excuses is that drinking makes me happy. But really, when you look at it, it's actually alcohol is the number one cause of unhappiness in society because it leads to so many negative things later. Whether you lose your job or you're in a car crash or you lose your relationship, they're all big causes of unhappiness.
0: Yeah, so you're going to be hard to convince a normal drinker in brackets that alcohol doesn't make them happy. You might be thinking, listening, surely drinking in moderation makes people happy. Surely.
1: Yeah, if you think of all the the parties that people are at and the weddings that people are at and going out with friends on Saturday nights, you're drinking and you're happy. So, you must think that because uh, I'm drinking, you know, I'm drinking this chemical, it doesn't taste so good, it doesn't quench my thirst, so it must be making me happy. And then you think, well, the more I drink, the more happy I'm going to get. But obviously, we know that that's definitely not the case, that when you drink more, you don't get more happy. So, it's actually nothing to do with the alcohol, it's more that the are We're at a wedding and we're having fun with our friends and family. That's what's making us happy, not the alcohol. And another way to highlight this is, say, people go to a funeral and they also drink to drown their sorrows. So obviously, in in that regard, then drinking isn't making you happy because drinking at a funeral makes you more somber and more uh, despondent. So obviously, this uh, excuse of drinking making you happy is uh, being knocked out of the park.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's like that, again, that idea of drinking to drown your sorrows. It's a little bit, again, like our ostrich analogy. If you're drinking to drown your sorrows when you're at a funeral or something, again, it's a little bit like the ostrich sticking its head in the sand and not facing up to some of the trials and tribulations that life might be throwing at you. So if you're someone who actually believes, genuinely believes that drinking is making you happy, you can actually conduct this experiment yourself. So what you need to do, you need to separate the alcohol from the occasion. So it's actually the occasion making you happy at times, it's not the alcohol. So what you need to do is pick a moment of time when you're not happy or you're not sad, you're about neutral and you need to go into a room, bring and arm yourself with enough of your favorite type of booze, shut yourself in the room and eliminate all the other factors that are going to distort the experiment like TV, your phone or your radio. Now just sit there by yourself and start drinking and as you go, as you three or four or five drinks down, ask yourself, am I actually increasing in happiness? So, you've separated the drinking from the occasion and in this experiment, what you're going to find is you're probably not getting happier and you need to ask yourself, am I actually happy in this situation and do you want to spend the rest of your life in this frightening fog of being drunk?
1: Hmm. Another thing is that people say that we talked about, you know, people who say, I really enjoy a bottle of wine with my meal and that's making me happy, it's making the meal better, it's making the whole experience better. But unfortunately, by this point, if that's what we think, if we think we need a, a glass of wine to make our meal better, it means we're at the point where, where we actually can't enjoy our meal as much without drinking that wine. So, we're at this point now where alcohol has like eroded this sense of enjoyment we get out of having a, a nice meal with friends.
0: Absolutely, man. Everyone's just going to look at the facts or, or observe. So, if you're at a party, check out your friends and assess which ones are truly happy. They the ones who are blind drunk or are they the non-drinkers? Or again, if you go to a, a children's party where nobody's drinking, go around and see how, how great social event these can be without the effect of the drug whatsoever. So if you're one of those people who need this this alcohol again for any kind of social occasions to remove all your inhibitions or to block your mind from whatever aggravation, worry or fear that is causing you to be unhappy, relaxed or distressed, then as I was saying earlier, you've really embarked on a dangerous course where you're dependent on this drug to help you with these, these genuine social, uh, social things that you need to deal with. You know perhaps you actually feel that your problem is not just that you have an inferiority complex. You might have this deep insecurity that you are genuinely inferior, and this is what causes you to drink. If you lack confidence, there is actually a reason that you lack confidence, and this can actually be addressed. Trying to take alcohol to deal with the problem ensures that you will, and if you take alcohol to really deal with this problem, it means that you're never actually going to get to the true root of unhappiness because you keep sticking your head in the bloody sand when all these issues are popping up. And if you drink in order to enjoy the social event or the bottle of wine to enjoy the meal, you're already hooked. You know, not at the chronic stage, but you're absolutely dependent on this drug to make that occasion up to the normal point where the the non-drinker is the whole time.
1: So now, Alan Carr presents us with a chapter called Quit Forever or Cut Down. And so if you think of the alcoholic, there's this nightmare. They're administering themselves with this poison, but they also seem powerless to stop doing it. And so you need to stop thinking, I can never have another drink, and instead replace that with thinking how wonderful it's going to be when you can stop poisoning yourself. So if you're the one who decides to cut down, you're going to spend
0: much of your time wanting another drink and not being actually able to have one because you're cutting down. And this will make you feel really deprived and miserable, and this will not only cause additional stress, but you'll actually be wishing your life away just for that extra extra fix.
1: Yeah, if you think that, like say, smoking as well and drinking, that say there's a lot of uh, cost involved and there's a lot of detrimental health effects involved. So he's saying that if you decide you're going to cut down, so you might drink half as much or you cut 75% off, you're actually going to see some improvements. Your health's going to improve a little bit. You're going to have less hangovers. You're going to have more money in the bank because you're going to be buying less alcohol. But what that means is that you're going to think you're making progress, but it's actually now harder to quit because those same negative things that drove you to quit in the first place are less. So he's saying that by having more money and being a bit healthier from cutting down, it actually makes it harder to quit.
0: Uh, Now, what about those lucky normal drinkers who just do it so uh, easily, a little bit like grandma, What he's saying is since 90% of the population has fallen into this trap of alcohol, he can't deny that it's normal but in no way is it lucky and he uses the analogy of quicksand. If 90% of the population were in quicksand and slowly falling down and you were one of them, would you envy the people who hadn't sunk as deep as you or would you envy people who didn't realize that they were sinking? I mean, that's what most of the population are doing. They don't realize that they're actually sinking in quicksand by taking this drug or realize it's taking away
1: all these these positive things about them. You might think, you know, it's it's all right in moderation, you know, just a little bit, I'm sure that's okay. You know, just to be a normal lucky drinker, just have a little bit. You're saying, you know, it's, you can't really get a little bit pregnant He's saying that the nature of this drug addiction, it actually fools you into believing that you're in control. You might think, oh, if I just have a little bit, it's okay, I'm in control. But as you see, it's really not the case. He says, you know, at first, you drink a little bit, just that one drink, and then sooner rather than later, you're going to realize that just like all the other flies that are in the pitcher plant, or just like everybody else who's stuck in that quicksand, you're slowly sliding down. So instead, rather than, you know, submitting to this, Uh, this obvious fate, we need to realize and rejoice that we can actually free ourselves from this trap forever.
0: Now, those listening, if you've you've loved alcohol for so long it's been a big part of your life, you might be getting butterflies in your stomach about what it actually might mean if you remove this from your life, right? It's it's a big change that you're you're thinking of right now. One of the the things we're scared most of is the thought of attending social functions, for example, without this crutch of alcohol. In Alan Carr's experience, what he says he's done, he tends to leave certain functions earlier and other ones he doesn't attend at all. So initially, this really worried him. It seemed to indicate that he wasn't enjoying himself so much without drinking and going around sober. But in reality, it was actually the, the total opposite. The true reason he stopped attending some of these functions was they're actually in, completely boring in the first place. And the only reason he could suffer them previously was because he was blind drunk and inebriating himself uh, into the delusion that they were actually good functions. So again, it just emphasizes the fact that alcohol does not make people happy. It really just renders them temporarily oblivious to their sorrows and how maybe shit the social function might be
1: in reality. (laughs) I like it. So as we've gone through so far, we've talked about the brainwashing. We've talked about the truth of alcohol uh, and what it really is, not what we believe it could be. Uh, we're down to the final two chapters, chapter twenty-five: How to make it easy to quit. And so when Carr escaped the evils of this drug addiction of alcohol, you know he might have he thought at the start, you know the benefits are going to be physical, you know it's going to be my health, it's going to be my wealth, but there were all these actual unexpected benefits that came along with it.
0: Yeah, there is absolutely big ones that you never even think of, and this was big for me also with smoking. You know, it's the idea of self-respect. Or freedom, you know, the idea of freedom is huge. It's not being dominated by something. Once you realize that you can go to a social event without the need to drink or anything like that, you've got this real sense of freedom and self-respect. And on top of that, it's huge courage and confidence. You know, when you're mentally and physical low, he says molehills become mountains. But when you're in control of your mental faculties and you're sober and you're all there, the mountains
1: become molehills. So now that we've freed ourselves from all of these illusions, we've destroyed all of the excuses that we were previously telling ourselves, we can actually get ourselves unhooked. We can cure this, I guess. We can take back control because we no longer have any desire. So rather than that, if we have that desire to just have another drink, we feel like we're depriving ourselves, we're hooked again. So really what we want to be doing here is realizing that yes, all of these illusions, we've just uh, become disillusioned, we've removed all these fake excuses, and now we no longer desire to have just one drink. So when you quit the willpower method, which is the usual way or when you
0: try and cut down or make the vow to never drink again, you're going to go through this indefinite period of desperation and craving, hoping that one day eventually you'll get over this drug addiction and, and you're going to feel eureka, I'm free of this drug addiction. Now, easy way is the reverse. You need to think about all the things that that alcohol has been taking with you and take this eureka on free moment to right now, mm-hmm. right? It's this feeling that, fuck yeah, I'm going to be free of this drug for the rest of my life and I'm going to get all these amazing things back into my life. And you might be feeling butterflies in your stomach but that's okay. You're about to achieve one of the most exhilarating feelings of your whole entire life.
1: Yeah, rather than the willpower method where you vow never to drink again and then you have to fight and fight and fight this indefinite period of desperation and craving and hopefully become free one day, he's saying just after all that we've talked about, decide to be free right now. So, you know, the book is titled The Easy Way to Control Alcohol. So you might think it's just about, you know, cutting down and taking a little bit more control. He admits now towards the end of the book that the title has been a little bit misleading. It's not actually to control your alcohol but he's saying that the only way to actually control is to become completely free.
0: That's it, man. If you control and cut down, you really think you're making a sacrifice. If you quit completely, you are completely free. You're
1: free of it altogether. You've got a wonderful opportunity today to decide whether you'll spend the rest of your life dominated and enslaved by this evil drug or to be free.
0: All right, so... Ash Joe, let's disc- dis- disclose now. I think anyone who's listened this far into the episode is going to have a real open mind. Mate, I'm done with booze.
1: Yeah, I think I'm done as well, man. Mate, I initially read this. As I said, I wanted to read it, you know, 12 months on from smoking, we'll do alcohol for people who are alcoholics. I thought this is not going to apply to me. But by having an open mind, by weighing up all these rational arguments, it becomes very obvious that, mm. uh, you know, just by having a couple of drinks a week, that potentially is an alcohol problem in itself.
0: Yeah, it's been an extremely long episode, but it kind of had to be uh, because we had to get as many to uh, dispel many of these myths as possible. I mean, there's a lot more in the book uh, that people need to go out there and buy it for.
1: Mm, Yeah.
0: So, all right. So, if you're listening right now and you want to join the brigade of non-drinking and we've gotten you over the line, then the rest of this episode is going to be the instructions. Uh, If you're someone who thinks this book makes a lot of sense, stop the episode but you don't want to quit, stop the episode and go and buy the book yourself and and learn more about it.
1: He's got here the the chapter, the instructions. Instruction number one, do not think I must never have another drink because obviously that leads to that feeling of deprivation. and instead think, isn't this great? My life is no longer dominated by this devastation.
0: Well, the second instruction is don't avoid thinking about the fact that you no longer drink. If you're thinking, eureka, I'm free, every time you think... Hell yeah, I don't I'm not my life's not dominated by this booze. Then you're actually going to enjoy thinking about the fact that you don't have to drink anymore.
1: Number three, he says there will be a few days where you get that feeling of I want to drink. And look, don't worry, that's part of the physical craving, especially at the start. But that's really a tiny, tiny part of it compared to the mental craving that you've already overcome by deciding not to drink. Step or instruction number four, do not wait to become a non-drinker. You
0: are one from the start. If someone asks you, do you want to drink? You say, I'm a non-drinker. And this is very different to Alcoholics Anonymous who claim that you're an alcoholic for life.
1: (laughs) Number five, realize that you are in control of the craving, whereas before the craving was in control of you.
0: Number six is do not mourn. If a close friend or relative dies, you have to go through this grieving process because it's genuinely a bad thing. But if an enemy dies, there is no need to mourn. You can actually rejoice. Whenever the subject crosses your mind, again, think, hell
1: yeah, I'm free of this. Yeah, so don't mourn the fact that you're no longer drinking. Obviously, it's a a good thing. Number seven, do not alter your life in any way because you've quit drinking. So, you know, don't avoid pubs and restaurants or, you know, don't change your friendship groups who used to drink because obviously, you know, you might think, oh, I'm going to be tempted to drink again. But no wonder, like, if people try to quit they're going to slide back because if they're completely changing their life, they're removing the things that they previously enjoyed because they think they can't do it without drinking, no wonder they're going to get back on the drink.
0: And this is the most important point for me uh, in out of all of these instructions and that is the best policy that you can have is go to a pub or a party immediately or a place that you previously thought was impossible to enjoy without alcohol. Um, And this is going to prove to yourself that you don't have to wait in order to enjoy yourself without drinking. You can actually have more fun... Sober at some of these vents. I mean, just a few days ago, New Year's Eve, uh, I was out at a party with a whole bunch of people. Again, sober all day. Everyone was just drinking my backyard, and it was even better. And everyone out there is going to expect you to be miserable because you're not boozing, but it's really the opposite. When they see you relaxed and happy that you're not drinking, they're going to start thinking that you're superhuman. You know, how the hell is this person having so much energy and fun without booze? But even more importantly, you will actually be feeling superhuman that you're over this drug, that you can attend these occasions and just have as much or even more fun without booze.
1: Amazing. Number eight, I think this is a pretty important one resist the temptation to convert friends. Yeah. You know, it's not like, you know, we're in this cult now and we're trying to recruit other people into our cult. It doesn't work. You can't do the same effective job that Alan Carr would do. If they don't want to do it, they're probably not going to and they're going to resent you for trying. Mate, we are in the car cult. anyone <laughs> <laughs> everyone's Mate, enjoying dragged the car call. I did drag
0: <laughs> you in. Uh, number nine is do not use substitutes. When you use a substitute, you might go out and have uh, Cokes every time you go out. What you're doing is you're subconsciously telling yourself that you're making a sacrifice. There is no sacrifice being made here.
1: Yeah, number 10, enjoy breaking false associations. So we used to associate... Drinking with being happy. We used to associate drinking with having a good holiday or we used to associate drinking with having fun at a party. They're all false associations, so enjoy that you've broken those.
0: Yeah, exactly. And number 11, never envy drinkers. The person drinking the booze and the ones getting smashed and vomiting everywhere and so forth, they're the ones being deprived of all these things we're talking about, your health, wealth, uh, your mental faculties and so forth. You're not the one being deprived. So at the end of the book, he talks about this elusive moment of revelation and who knows, you listening might have already experienced it but it's one of the most wonderful experiences in your whole life, Alan says. And it's the feeling that when you truly know that you are completely free of this drug, sometimes it happens a few weeks after quitting, sometimes it happens straight away but usually it occurs after one of those occasions where previously you thought you could never enjoy or never have fun without alcohol Uh, But then on the way home, you're driving home from this event, this wedding or whatever, and you realize you've had just as good or even better time without the need for alcohol. And then you so you've enjoyed yourself just as much or even more, plus you're getting all the benefits of being sober and not being dominated by the drug. So that's the book, man. Powerful, rational, Mm -hmm. and life-changing in every way. Uh, I think I'd I'd really love to hear what listeners Mm listeners thought of this book more than anything else, uh, please send us an email, podcast at com. Uh, especially if you, if this podcast has been one of the, the catalysts and actually make you stop drinking or if you're going out to buy the book yourself. Nothing gets me more excited or happier when then when I see someone who's left a a review for the podcast and ideally it's something nice to say about how we might have helped them in some way. So if you feel like you're getting something out of this show, then please let us know by leaving us a review on any of the platforms that you wish and it'll make us really excited and really happy and uh, gives that little bit of fuel to keep on going forward and continue to put all the effort and energy into this podcast.